The Jewish Frame, Episode 4, Special Hanukkah Edition, An American Tale. Okay, hello, Ben. Oh, you hello. have to do the introduction. I can introduce this. This is Twice. The Jewish Frame, a Jewish podcast about movies and a movie podcast about Jewishness. I'm Ben Chin. With me, as always, is Rabbi Dan Ain of Congregation Beth Shalom in San Francisco. And uh, we decided to do a special Hanukkah episode. Indeed. Um, we are now into Hanukkah, and we figured we'd do a family movie, a holiday movie. And so we're going to be talking about an American tale. Indeed. T-A-I-L. T-A-I-L, the 1986 Don Bluth directed. Who is, Don, Bl Who is Don Bluth? Don Bluth. You're going to get a kick out of this. Not Jewish. <laughs> so I assumed he was Jewish with a name like Don Bluth. Not Jewish. He is, in fact, the great-grandson of one of the early leaders of the Church of Latter-day Saints. That's, that's random. That is pretty random. That is very, very random. So my first question about this movie is, how does this movie get made? Because think... what is it? What is it? It's, it's an immigrant tale told by... Through the lens of mice, <laughs> and it's just it's. I, I, how, who's making this movie for what audience? I don't. I, I guess that's where I want to start. Well, let's put this in context. Yes, thank you. This is 1986. This is a low point for animation, which is to say, it's a low point for Disney. Um, the Disney movie, the other family movies. This year, the other animated family movies this year are The Great Mouse Detective, that's the Disney movie, Oof. and Heathcliff. I'm not Oof. even sure who produced that one. Oof. So this is They weren't a, making Muppet movies anymore? Not this Probably year. Probably done. A little they, too late six, for right? that. Yeah. Um, and uh, Disney won't really come back until I think it's 89 Little is The Little Mermaid, right? That is the resurgence of Disney really coming back to its former glory. But these are... Wait, so American Tales is a Disney movie? No, it's not a Disney movie. Don Bluth was at Disney. He worked on a bunch of Disney movies. He worked a little bit on Fox and the Hound. He was animation director for a few Disney movies and, and worked on a bunch of them. But Disney was in such bad shape that Don Bluth left because he was so disappointed with what Disney was doing at that time. And so he went out and he uh, created his own studio. And the first movie that he made as a director out on his own was The Secret of Nim, okay. which was pretty well regarded. I don't yes. know if you've seen it. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It was well-regarded at the time. I, I think it made some money. And then I think Steven Spielberg yeah, he's the goes producer. to yeah. uh, Don Bluth with this thing. So it's Spielberg's story. It's Because the story is not Don Bluth's story. Well, whose story is this? Um, well, there are three writers who are all Jewish and all came out of a children's television workshop. They all worked on Sesame Street. So those are the three writers. They all, they all, you know, they, I think, come out of a good outfit. 
and without character development, clearly. they right. They have the <laughs> they're the ones credited on the screenplay. But I think the idea for this thing came from Spielberg. So I liked the idea of this movie much more than I liked watching. When had you seen? Have you had you? I see. I hadn't seen it a long time, but I always. I don't know why. But somewhere out there, everyone knows that song. Okay, so that's clearly a hit song that everyone knows. And Immigrant Story, really nice. Immigrant Story told through a palatable lens of mice who were coming. It seems really nice. Wanting to show it to my kids, they would never wanted to see it. Finally sat through it with them the other night. And I'm like, this is terrible. I can't believe I made them sit through this movie. And also, there's no character development at all in this movie. This movie's got oh, you know, problems well, you, you, you take me that through. we can talk you about. You take me through. I'm worried I'm going to be too negative I'm just wondering, is there any other the table setting we got to do here? Well, I don't know. The only other table setting yeah. I would do is, in terms of the idea of this yeah. whole thing, the thing, because I, I thought about it and I looked it up, this is already several years after Spielberg's, sorry, um, Spiegelman's oh, Mouse. Yeah. Right. So uh, Art Spiegelman did the mouse comics. It was serialized. And that was already a few years before this. And then when he found out about the movie, he rushed to get the first chunk of it published as a book. Because, you know, it was two books, right? There was Mouse 1 and Mouse 2. But it wasn't planned that way. I think it was planned to be a book. But then when they got wind that this movie was coming out, Shush. yeah, they rushed out Mouse No, Mouse one. is like, that's, that's like one of the great 20th century pieces of American literature. I think it put the graphic novel on the map. Right. I mean, nobody had read a graphic novel before Mouse. Certainly not about right? the Holocaust. I hadn't ever, and to have one that was actually selling and everybody was talking about, yeah, that was a major- Unbelievable event and an amazing work of art we should do we're gonna have to, which yes, this an is amazing not. work in art. We, we, this was not we're gonna have we should do at some point a whole holocaust we should do a holocaust uh well I, we, spielberg i mean uh, well i don't want to do there you really want to do no i don't want to do schindler's, schindler's list, list. Okay. there must be other movies so i don't understand who the audience is and that you know this comes it's like my question we did keeping the faith who's the audience for keeping the faith there's no audience for that movie. There's no audience no, for this movie. No, the audience is clear. The audience is kids to whom you can sell anything. Right? You put on an animated feature during the holidays, and kids are going to come see it because what else are they going to go see? This was a time, like I said, when there was, there was, just, there was a whole bunch of not very good animated films. Disney was not doing great work. Nobody was doing great work in this space. This was probably the best animated feature film that was made, uh, certainly that I was year. 10, I was 10 in 86. So Were you aware of the movie when it came out? Yeah, somewhere out there. I mean, everybody knows that too. I mean, that, that transcended the movie, the song. Yeah, that was a hit for uh, Linda Ronstadt and James Ingram. All right, so they had Linda Ronstadt. That's real talent. Well, not in this movie, they didn't. Well, they we'll recorded get, we'll get it afterwards. So let's let's talk yes. about the the nuts and bolts of this film. 
So it opens in some small town in Russia where the Mouskowitz family is celebrating Hanukkah. This is the first and the last Jewish, Jewish reference. I know. It's there's nothing. It's so so. Well, hold on. Let me stop you for one second. I watched this with my kids. They're ten and ten and uh, well, seven. They're ten and seven. My kids. And I said to them, I said, okay, so Ben and I do this podcast. We're interested. I said, one of the questions we have is how Jewish is this movie? So my kids, I won't say annoyingly, but frequently would say, how Jewish is this movie on one to 10? And I started at nine, right around that Hanukkah scene. And then as the movie went, I, my number kept going lower and lower because there was nothing Jewish that sustained this movie. No, you're right. So that's the first thing. We see them lighting Hanukkah candles, and uh, the Mouskowitz family is celebrating, and Fievel is the son, and the father, Papa Mouskowitz, gives him the hat. The hat off his own head, because you can tell they don't have anything. They don't, weren't able, they didn't buy presents because they're some poor Jewish family in Russia. So he gives him his own hat, and he says, this has been in the family for three generations, whatever. He gets a cute blue hat. Next thing that happens... And they're talking about cats. And, oh, oh in America. Good. There are no cats in America. There are no cats. Well, So then. My kids had a hard time with that. They're like, but there are cats in America. Of course there were. And then, of course, there's a pogrom. Uh, and the Cossacks yes. come in. And behind them are Cossack cats. Correct. That, so while the Cossacks. So what do the cats represent? This makes no good. Yeah, that's what sense. That's right. We want to get right into this. It makes no racists. I think that's my take. Cats are racists. Cats are xenophobic racists. The whole world of this movie makes no (laughs) earthly sense. The mice are all completely anthropomorphized. They wear clothes. They have little houses. Well, no, they have mouse holes, I guess, but they do wear clothes and talk, and there are human beings in this movie. Every now and again, you get a glimpse of the human world. And so no, they're eating the scraps. They eat the table scraps. They make it clear, like, you'll go, go to this area because it's full of fallen cheese that falls on the ground. Right. But what do the human beings think of the mice? Do they never see mice? Do they, do they ever see the mice and go, that's interesting. These mice are all wearing clothes and hats. And I think that's like, that's like par do, for the course in the animated these... children's tale that you're going to have anthropomorphized animals, no? Yes, but in something like, I don't know, The Rescuers or, I mean, most animated films or The Lion King or whatever, right? The whole world is the animals. There are no human beings, right? So the animals very clearly are standing in for human characters. That's the way usually it works. But in this, there are human beings. And the human beings very clearly are this parallel world where the same kinds of things are happening, but these two worlds never intersect they and never at really, any point at any point they never see each other and they never interact it's just very weird and so the mice are yeah like very people. poorly written yeah and the cats are it's not clear what they represent and even weirder in this opening the cats are like monsters that's right and they don't meow they roar 
like lions or ogres or something in the opening scene. They're like, they make this monstrous sound. They are inarticulate and just sort of pure evil. Nazis. Cossacks in this. Cossacks, Nazis, the the typical anti-Semite, racist, xenophobic character. Right. But then they... Their house gets burned down. Oh, the humans' houses well, all get burned down. Well, you have to talk about there's no cats in America. Like, yeah, that's they, a whole bit. They talk about, well, there's more of that a little later on. They So the town gets burned down. Their mouse hole gets burned down. So they have to leave. So the next thing you know, they, you see them at the port in Hamburg. And there's a German mouse umbab band. And they're going on the boat. And then they get on the boat. And on the boat is every kind of European immigrant. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I, this... Yeah. Leaving from Hamburg. Oh, yes. There's... Uh, Italian, there's Irish. Russians, there's Italians. Sure. Would Italians be leaving from Hamburg? Seems odd, <laughs> right? There's uh, Germans. Okay, that makes sense. But there's also Irish. an Irish mouse. Yeah. Why would an Irish mouse be embarking in Hamburg. Because this was the wave of immigration in the late 19th century to America, yes. Ben. And all they're all just the same. They're all equivalent. And you hear the Italian mouse singing in a song yeah, about cats. Yeah, a little, un- yeah, been, a little uncomfortable. Re- some of the, some of the phraseology used by the... It's a little bit... Right. And they sing this song, There Are No Cats What was his name? Tommy Tomasino? With the, with the one? Tony? Tony DeLiso? I mean, it's just... It Tony's t- later, yeah, yeah. But yeah. even on the boat, yeah. there's an Italian yeah. mouse. And they sing this big song, There Are No, no Cats, cats in, America, in America. Which reminded me a lot of, uh, like, I Want to Live in America, the West Side Story. Maybe West Side Story's just been on my mind with uh, because they, there's a new well, one Spielberg. coming yeah, out, kidding, right? right? And Spielberg. But I felt like, actually, this movie borrowed from it. Because it's also about immigrants. West Side Story. And this song, in a couple of t- couple of uh, times, reminded me of that. And this was the first time they sing this song. Actually, it's not terrible. This song, there are no cats in America. There are some terrible songs. In this isn't movie. terrible. And there's a cute bit where they <laughs> they show the barrels of herring, and uh, there are three barrels of herring, and one thing, one of them says herring breakfast, one says herring lunch, <laughs> and one says herring All dinner. Right, that's cute. That was cute. <laughs> So I'm just gonna I'm gonna get through this as quickly go, as I go, can. Go, go, please. Because there's not much of a No, there's story. not no, no, there's not much. I, I I I said to you, I texted you after I saw the movie. I can't name there's that Tony, the Italian immigrant character. Yeah. There's Fival. Yeah. And there's his sister who has named Tilly or something like that. That's her American name. I can't even remember right, what exactly. her given name. That's is. right. They don't even give the characters names. They don't really give them backstories. They don't really give them personalities. There's very little to grab hold of. Not much of going on them. So they get to the United, they get to America, and oh, but of course, before they get to America, they separate. Um, they Fievel, get separate. Yeah, goes up to the deck to see fish that he wants to see, and he gets washed out to sea. I have to tell you, I didn't even understand that. I didn't even understand what he's trying to get. I didn't understand how he gets. Lo- he's looking for herring. It didn't even make any sense to me. He's just a. He's just a he's just a curious kid. He's just a curious kid, okay. right? He wants to go up and see what's going on. Okay, so he gets fine. washed overboard. The family all thinks he's dead. And they you see them embarking. What was the point of making them mice? It's just like it's just it was a pun. It's this whole movie comes from well, a pun. It's it's like Spielberg's like, oh, Disney's got their mouse. I'm gonna have my mouse. And Fival actually became the logo 
of Amblimation, which was the animation studio that Spielberg created, made three movies and then was defunct. But that was a thing. And that predated DreamWorks. That exactly predated DreamWorks. And it's not Amblin? Amblin is his just regular production company, but Amblimation was going to be his animation studio, which didn't really work out. And this was probably the Do you know anyone who had a Fievel doll? I've never seen a Fievel doll. Not once. There wasn't really a whole bunch of merchandise out of this thing. Just the song. I don't think. Just the song. Which seems like a missed opportunity, actually, because Fievel's kind of cute as a thing. I mean, as just an object. Bible doll with the hat. That'd be kind of cute. Anyway, so they get to America and, oh, this is a little bit of pet peeve for me. So you see the grown-ups at Ellis Island. And what's the one gag? Do you remember the one gag is the, the guy walks up to the immigration desk and the guy says, name. And he says, you know, Ivanovich, Ryan. And he says, oh, all right, Mr. Smith. This is a myth. You know this, right? That's a myth? This didn't happen. This is a complete myth that people had their names changed at Ellis Island. There's been scholarship on this that shows that it is. And this movie is a immigration story myth-making machine. 100%. And this is the first sort of part of that. Because this thing of people changing people, changing people's names at Ellis Island apparently did not happen. Well, as always, we tried to understand that about my name, Ain. We always just assumed it was shortened. Like from Ainsky or Anitsky yeah, maybe, or something like that. Oh, people did change their names. Yeah, people but they, they weren't forcibly changed. But they weren't changed at Ellis Island. And that's the myth is that, oh, it's kind of a cute story and it was a, it's an accident of whatever. No, what happened was, People showed up in America, faced anti-Semitism, and changed their names themselves. And then through, I think, sort of shame about uh, internalized shame about the the anti-Semitism or other anti-immigrant feeling that they faced, or a a sort of um, retrospective triumphalism of succeeding in America, the story comes up like, oh, it got changed at Ellis Island. Anyway, so this is... this we is should a... watch Avalon, Barry Levinson, Avalon. They, they, also cha- they change family, their right? names there. That's, yeah. that's a big part well, of it. Well, what we should watch also if, for this is like Hester Street. Okay. Which it would, it would be better looks than at real human beings and their actual experiences or what could it be actual experiences i don't know the benefit of showing this to a child though like i showed it to my children i'm just like what's it's funny because my wife watched it too and she she turned to my kids when it was over and she asked them what the lesson was my 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 seven-year-old had no idea what the lesson was and my 10-year-old said never give up maybe 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 i was like that's good as good as i could come up with but i mean the best i can come up with is it is myth-making about the American immigrant experience, which I think is not strange coming from Spielberg. In that his, you know, many of his movies, especially in the first part of his career, maybe up into the 80s, is sort of gauzy 
about the American experience in a lot of ways. Uh, but so, I mean, I think of um, E.T., for example, like those kids were flesh and blood kids. I mean, what made that movie so special is that he brought the camera down to the kids' angle. So those children were real children, which was different from other movies. Here, these these characters are paper thin. That that yeah. that I found okay. I don't probably to, I don't have did to keep not have that much to do with the no, story. I doubt it. I imagine. I doubt it. Anyway, so uh, that's they. So they show up there analysis. Because I have a family narrative like this. So my uh -huh. family, as I'm sure a bunch of us do, we have family narratives like this. So okay, let's show my kid a nice little. You can open that beer on camera. That's fine. On on Mike. On Mike. That's totally acceptable. It is Hanukkah. Okay. Um, I just don't want to make loud popping sounds. I'll make loud slurping sounds. All right. So keep doing the movie, and then I'll talk about my family. Okay, well, can we can each, we can each talk, we'll talk about our, yeah, yeah. our, our I'm sure ancestors' you have immigrant experiences? Well, I'm an immigrant myself, so I don't have, um, to this country, at least, so I don't have such well, an My grandmother, story. before she passed away, wrote a, uh, a whole memoir of her experiences in the 20th century, and uh, I have it here with me, and the story's not dissimilar to the Mouskowitz story, <laughs> which I'm, I can sure share with you. I'm sure it's the same thing. Yes, pretty much. Yeah. That's right. Right. So they, they show up, and then you see Fievel, of course, wash up inside a bottle, and he gets there. And then he meets up with this warranty rat, who is this rat. He's clearly a shady character. Um, Fievel says, oh, I won't need to find my family. And warranty rat says, oh, I'll find your family for you. Follow me. And in instead, of course, of showing him his family, he shoves him in this sweatshop I mean, so run by another mouse. Terrifying. I mean, absolutely terrifying to be locked into a sweatshop. It's like all the way up. But it's you okay get... because it doesn't last for more than five seconds. If even. They don't actually ever show you what this sweatshop is. All you get is shorthand because then the camera sort of pans up, as it were, and you see the legs of women working at their sewing machines you get that shot for about two seconds and then like okay this is a sweatshop and that's all you need to know because the next thing fievel is escaping with, with his friend with his tony friend tony who is this italian mouse he doesn't sound italian he's just got this ludicrous brooklyn sort of and he's like accent. weird and weird he just sounds like hey like uh i don't know the fawns are you know terrible terrible and he has the most ridiculous hair. He's a mouse. He has this massive shock of jet black hair. Gelled. Right, because <laughs> he's Italian. So let me talk about the way people talk in this movie for just a second. Um, Fievel's papa sounds Russian. Fievel's mama sounds Russian. They've got these old world... Wait, we have a, a visitor. We have a guest. Come on in. No, we're good. No, we're no, good. No, we're all good. We're having a Hanukkah party here outside. Rabbi Russell has just had a huge group of 40 young folks here. 50. She wants me to tell you, 50 young folks here yeah, we celebrating the third night of Hanukkah. We walked in on a, a party here. Okay. Yes. So where was I? Oh, so the way it was, the mama and papa Mouskowitz uh, sound like old world Russians. Fievel and his sister... Just sound American. Somehow, they don't even have Russian accents. 
And, of course, all these mice speak English. I'm so glad that you're ripping into the movie because I was worried that I'd be alone here. Yeah, you thought I going. might like this film? No, I didn't think I'd like it. I just thought I was going to be too negative, but I don't have to worry about that now. No, I don't think so. Yes, and I said, it's a kid's movie, right? So you have to take certain things for granted. But it just sticks in my craw, again, because the story of this movie is these mice, people, whatever, show up, and they are instantly Americans. Fievel shows up, and he is instantly American. Oh, I think I might have skipped the part where first he um, uh, hooks up with this pigeon called Henri, this French pigeon voiced by Christopher Plummer. Oh, I didn't think Yeah, but you wouldn't know because he's doing his best Maurice Chevalier. He's like, ha, 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 literally. He's my little, and he calls him my little immigrant. He has the most ludicrous French accent. He sounds like, reminds me of that thing from History of the World Part yes, One. Remember yes, that? Yes, yes. <laughs> With, uh, we do not even have uh, our own language. We just speak in these ridiculous accents <laughs> like Maurice Chevalier. <laughs> he sounds exactly like Maurice Chevalier, um, which is a shame because Christopher Plummer is a great actor. I don't know what he's doing in this role. Anyway, so there's the, they hook up the pigeon. The pigeon says, oh, I'm here. I'm in the, this is my statue. We are just finishing it. And I'm not quite sure what that scene is for, but then he takes um, Fievel to the, to the Alassane, whatever. Okay, so then he hits the one T-Rat, gets in the sweatshop, escapes the sweatshop with his friend Tony, and they wash up on Hester Street. You see a big sign says Hester Street. So now you know we're on the Lower East Side. Um, thank you very much. And then um, what happens? Oh, he ends up in some uh, uh, house or something. Who remembers? Who It doesn't really matter. <laughs> well, there is sort of a gag where he hears music and he thinks it's his father playing the violin. Oh, yes. But it's just a, uh, it's just a phonograph, right? Um, oh, oh, and then he sees some Irish lass preaching about we have to take care of the cats so in america there aren't clearly cats and cats are a no but he says problem. there are no cats and then he gets attacked and by then he gets wise yes he gets attacked by a, a a cat and then the irish mouse says oh you're looking for your family let's go see honest john honest john is they go see him he is this tammany hall crooked politician just straight out of and he's drunk you know he's a fat drunk irishman and he's like no i don't i haven't don't know your family and then in comes um uh, mrs mouseheimer uh played by voice oh, by madeline khan, madeline khan yeah, who she's she's good basically doing lily von Stupp it was funny from blazing saddles she's okay yeah she's okay i just i knew it was her yeah because it sounds just like lily von Stupp, right <laughs> um and she says, oh, we will have a wally. She has this. Oh, yes. She sounds like, um, uh, um, yeah, what's his name from Life of Brian? Um, anyway, I guess she has this speech impediment. And she says, we will have a wowie to uh, see what we can do about the cats. So all the mice meet. They have a rally. Fievel pipes up, says, I have an idea. She listens to him. She's like, oh, that's a good idea. And they build... The, the the plan is to build a giant mouse. Oh, because back in Russia, during the opening scene, the father says, oh, there's this story about the giant mouse of Minsk. 
And so that's where uh, Fievel gets the idea. They're going to build a giant mouse. The giant mouse is you know going to chase think of, the cats. You know what made me think of ever, ever go by these um, labor disputes where they, they blow up the big rat? The big rat, yeah. That's what this made me think of. Yeah, that's about right. Except it's on wheels in right. this thing. Um, although they did, I guess, what was it? Was it A Bug's Life? Was it that one? I There's one so. of those movies where they- Ants? Uh, where they're ants and they build a, a bird to scare away the crickets. So that- Maybe they got the idea from this movie. So they, they they come up with a plan. They're gonna chase. I mean, clearly not every cat in New York, but the handful of cats that have been bothering them, they're gonna chase out of town. So then Fievel comes upon. Oh, I hated that. This, they, uh, the, the lair of the cats. Lure the cats. They're all hanging out. Now this is the craziest part of this movie, which I would love to hear you do it. Your do response it. Set it up. It makes. No earthly sense. He comes upon the lair of the cats. The cats are playing cards. One of the whom is Tiger, who's voiced by Dom DeLuise, oh, who is doing, I think, his best Burt Lar as a cowardly lion. Oh, that's what he was doing. Doesn't it kind of sound like <laughs> that? It didn't occur to me what he was doing before, but that's right. And I must I, have been. But I couldn't figure out: is he doing that, or is that just Dom DeLuise? Or is he just mailing it in? Done? It was unclear. Has that always been Tom DeLuise? Was he always just doing Burt Lar? Put him up. I'm in it. Oh, did he do that? I didn't even catch that. Did he do that? No, he didn't say that. Oh, but he that's, talks that, like that. That sounded just like that was good. Yeah, what are we what are we playing? What do you here? mean? I got, I, what do you mean? Put him up. He's kind of doing that kind of thing. <laughs> so uh warranty rat is there. And he's apparently the boss of the cats. You're like, oh, this is odd. But then he okay, removes... I couldn't follow the narrative. How is a 10-year-old going to follow the narrative? No. He removes his nose. Oh, that's right. He's a he fake. He's a his fake. Ears, and it turns out the warranty rat is, in fact, a cat. Now, now why in the why? world would a cat want to dress up as a mouse? And also, this is treated as if it is a big reveal. Whereas... Who cares? I couldn't. I if couldn't, he's a rat I couldn't figure or a it out. cat, he's evil. He's bad. We knew from the beginning he was bad. If he was a character we were supposed to sympathize with, if he was supposed to be on the side of the protagonist, and then it's revealed he's really a cat, well, that would be something. I had, no, I had no idea why he was dressing up as a mouse. I, as I a rat. As a rat. Yeah, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. I, it just didn't make any sense. Still doesn't make any sense. Dude. It doesn't make any sense because it's not like he hangs out with other rats. Wait, wait he wants to infiltrate he the rats? Uh, he infiltrate the rats to or get? The, I mean, what? no None. sense. Why Zero. he would? No, I checked out. Rat. I checked out at that point. I'm just like, I'm not going to bother following this. It guy's must story. have made sense in an earlier draft I don't, of the script yeah, or something. Maybe. There must have been some reason, sometime, why that would happen. But here it makes no. No, but he was very committed whatsoever. to his cover, and also didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it's just it was just bewildering, right? It's just <laughs> what is going on and why. So he turns out he's really a cat, and then you know what? It doesn't really it come doesn't up matter. Again, yeah, and it doesn't matter at all. No, not at all. Uh, Can we talk about how bad the Dom DeLuise song was? Yes, yeah, so that's Dom DeLuise. The worst. Um, that's one of the worst songs I've heard in an animated yes, movie they in put, a long time. Oh, I've heard worse than that. Really, that was pretty bad. Actually, I think the treatment of Somewhere Out There in this movie is worse. But at least it's a good song. So then they lock up Fievel in a cage, and Tiger, 
the cat played by, uh, voiced by Dom DeLuise, makes friends with him. And it's like, oh, I'm not really a bad guy, and let's be friends. And they sing a duet, uh, which is called, what is it? We're a duo. We're a duo, a duo. It's a pretty bad song. And then, now, it's somewhere out there before or after uh, that. Not only is it a bad song, but I wouldn't, I'm not sure Dom DeLuise's performance here was really... I don't know. It's like a comic character song. He can't really sing very well, but it doesn't really Well, matter. they didn't seem to use any singers for any of the songs. No, this is the other thing. It's a musical. Yes. And there are no singers. And at some point, we do hear somewhere out there, and I don't remember when because it doesn't fit into the story really hardly at all. It's This again reminded me of West Side Story. I think it's, um, you know, two night, two night when they're in two different places and they're kind of singing to each other. Is it that one or is, is it is it somewhere a place for us? One of those romantic numbers where, you know, she's on her balcony and he's somewhere else and they're singing and they're, it's a duet, but they're apart. This is the same thing. Fival is singing this song somewhere out there and his sister is singing it and they're in two different places. And they both sound horrible. He's, <laughs> he's, he sounds like, you know, an eight-year-old, seven-year-old who can't really sing as most seven or eight-year-olds can't just kind of trying to sing. She's a little bit older, but also not a singer. And they sound, this was supposed to be, I guess, the hit song from this movie. It was. It, right, but it sounds horrible. I think it was only a hit because it was, it was Linda Ronstadt. subsequently recorded by actual singers. And by the way, I listened to that version. I couldn't the listen Linda to Ronstadt it. The Linda Ronstadt song? Yeah, I couldn't It's bad to it. too? It's just so, it sounds so 1986. Oh, yeah. It's just, and, and it just sounds kind of cheap and, and awful. even though I know how very far apart we are. But see, I mean, like. It's pretty bad. Say whatever you want. Like, it's not a great, but it did, it did cross over, right? Like, that song yeah, was it, the most successful thing about this. It's not a bad song. But it's the most successful thing from this movie, period. The movie was not unsuccessful. The movie did okay. I think the movie made money. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a total flop. No, so I guess what it is, is I guess what it is, it's a baby boomer movie where the baby boomers want to teach their children who were born in the eighties about their parents who came here. Right. The grandparents. Yeah. Or the grandparents. Oh, about the boomers' parents. So, right. That's right. So that's what this is. So this is coming 86. You got it in for the baby boomers, man. Well, for good reason. But uh, well, no. That well, there's a whole theory. There's a whole thing on this. Like the well, we can talk about this because you're a film guy. What are the where are the kids in the movies in the '70s? It's Rosemary's Baby. It's like the kids are the problem, and then all of a sudden you move to the '80s and you start to get Mr. Mom, and you start to get these other movies. Baby Boom and Baby Boom. That is right, and you get Baby on Board and all that. So there is a shift in how the baby boomers think of having their own children, which goes from, we don't want to have a child in the 70s because that's going to cramp our style and we have to be free and live our lives too. Oh my goodness, we're of a certain age, we start to have to start having children. Happens around the early 80s and that's when you see the shift in films from but then why the people... problem children who destroy your lives like Rosemary Baby to Baby Boom and all of these other but movies. Then why aren't they investing more in movies foreign about children? This film had a budget of $9 million. Is that a lot back then? That's nothing. Even back then? 
it wasn't that long ago in 1986. Nine million dollars? It's, I mean, today, these movies cost, well, I so, think, at least a hundred million dollars. But you would never use the same technology to make them today as you did back then. I mean, they were drawing this on, on this is hand-drawn. Yeah, but that takes a lot of time and effort. If it's done well. <laughs> yeah, and time and effort is, is cost money. hundred percent. Right? And the standard. Well, that was the excitement. Of, uh, so I remember that was the excitement of The Little Mermaid. It was, wow, look at the artistry from yeah. these hand-drawn cells. It was real, and it was real traditional animation done right. It was the kind of thing that Disney used to do in a previous generation, and it kind of stopped doing. I think they kind of cheaped out. Well, I think it's also technology, right? I mean, so many of these things, these shifts happen because of technology, and the 80s was a, I mean, bad, this was a bad year for movies, period. Well, uh, tell me what else came out in 86. I mean. Mannequin. Uh, well, no. I mean, that I mean, was 87. Even the best movies. The, the Oscar winner that year was Out of Africa. Six. Um, Color of Money was that year. That's right. Um, Top Gun. Yes, 86. Was probably that summer. Absolutely. These are the best movies. That movie there, Back of, to the Future, is 85. Of that. Uh, Back to the Future, right. These were the best movies. I mean, 86, 87 are terrible, terrible years. <laughs> and I think part of it is, I mean, I think back to yeah, why is what that? movies were like back then. And I think this was still era of the uh, chopping up of movie theaters. Remember, they would take these big one-screen theaters multiplexes. and they chopped them up the multi they made multiplexes out of them the way they made multiplexes is not the way they make multiplexes today which is that you've got an entire city block that's a movie theater they they took these not as big theaters and they just chopped them up into little, little theaters with these postage stamp size screens movie going became a not very good experience because they were threatened by VHS mm -hmm. and then cable and so I guess they thought that in, in, in order to compete with TV and, and video, they had to just do stuff cheaper and just, right, uh, uh, just wring every cent out of often substandard product and just fill more movie screens with not necessarily better stuff. And then they realized... <laughs> In more recently, I think maybe not even until the two thousands. The kids is a big market. Well, not just that, but the way to make money from movies is to have big movies that are big events. I mean, that has its own problems, right? But then they built these really nice multiplexes and started making movies for hundreds of thousands of dollars and having it be oh, the only way to experience this is at the movies. You know what changed it? Batman, nineteen eighty nine. Batman changed the game. Batman ushered in a new era. Just, so that's of just three years later. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, right. And that was it. That was you had to be well, there. Like three years later, you had Little Mermaid. You had Batman. You had movies that looked and sounded big and 
impressive. Yeah, and, and that leads to Jurassic reason, Park and everything else, right? Right, right. Although those also did well on video, right? But anyway, so this is a this is a low ebb for movies in general, for animated movies in particular. So it's just it's just not good. So let me let's just wrap up. So there wow. was you you're right though, because if you think back to this is actually interesting. If you think back to the eighties, it's all puppetry for kids. Almost entirely. I grew up with the Muppets. Okay. Yeah. You grew up with Fraggle Rock. It's all you Jim Henson. All of there was very little animation. Is Fraggle Rock around this time. Absolutely. Muppets is earlier. Certainly. Yes, but Muppets Muppets Take Manhattan is probably around this yeah, time too. Eighty four, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. And then Fraggle Rock is definitely around this time period. Those are all yes, Jim Henson that productions. HBO. That's right. Right. So there there is uh, the dominance of puppetry, I think, at this point. Rather than animation. There was an animation. It was all puppetry. Well, there was, what but was, it wasn't what, very good. What was the no Well there no, was but, this. No, but, but but I mean as a kid you went to see the Muppets Take Manhattan. You didn't you watched Fraggle Rock. You weren't watching Labyrinth. You weren't well, watching. You weren't watching. There was animation on TV that was also terrible. I would, yeah, He Man. Yeah, uh, Thundercats. Really I that would. I, I watched. Mean, I have a soft spot for Thundercats. Yeah, why but not? As as animation, it's it's not. Oh, good. it's the worst. Oh, yeah. it's terrible. Yeah, that's right. Bad animation yeah. and a lot of puppetry. Yeah. No, anything interesting I think was going on in Japan. Oh, I. I well, I think that was you know, anime. Anime started there. I think was happening in Japan in a major way. It didn't get here for a little while. But I remember even on um, TV when I was a kid and around, I mean, a little earlier than this, you did have those like things like Voltron. Um, uh, there was another one. There were some shows that came from Japan where the animation was like interesting. But it was it was it was Japanese stuff. In yeah, in America, it was Hanson. It was, was all it was Hanson. It was, was doing all Hanson. Anything for children was Hanson. And uh, Labyrinth, right? And all that stuff. Never-ending story. Yeah, he was doing good. The Hanson folks were doing good stuff. But yeah, Disney was not, and other people trying to do animation were not doing it very well. So to to wrap up this movie, um, where was I? They they make the, the, the giant mouse. It it chases the cat. He hears the violin. He finds his dad. And he hears the violin. He finds his dad. They chase the handful of cats onto a boat bound hate, for then, China. This is the worst. That was terrible. I just didn't have like. Oh, those are all the cats are gone now. It didn't. It, it was hard to explain to my kids. Sam's like, well, the, my my child is like, oh, there are no more cats in America. I, I I, it's hard to even explain that scene. Oh, they got. 12, rid of 12 cats. I'm not even. It's like <laughs> half a dozen. And they're like, oh, yay, we've solved the cat problem. So weird. And then he finds his family, and they're all together again, and it's wonderful. Yeah, I don't know. This movie really bothered me. It really it Well, let's really good. Let's talk me. about what are the most bothersome aspects. I was bothered by the Tony... And the Irish characters, which I thought were just because they were just such stereotypes, but like, like easy, superficial, 
oh, Tony, his name is Tony, and he speaks in a Brooklyn. I mean, just come on. It was like, it seemed um, uh, superficial. Well, nothing gets explored, right? Everything's just shorthand. You know, this is a shorthand for an Irish character. This is shorthand for What's uh, Fievel's dad's name? Papa Maskowitz. <laughs> right? There's nothing explored or at all unexpected. It it's just it's How lazy. How does Papa Mouskowitz uh, find money? Yeah, I wondered that myself. <laughs> what does he do for a living? What does he do once he comes to America? What does he think? He's... I know at least Fivel has a job in the sweatshop. I mean, <laughs> for, for two seconds, he doesn't do a lick of work. He shows up, um, he gets shoved in a dormitory, and then he escapes. He doesn't do anything there. So yeah, what does he do? Who knows? Um, Mrs. Mouseheimer, why is she the richest uh, mouse in New York? Who knows? N nothing is explained or explored or anything. I'll tell you what bothers me about this film. What bothers me about this movie is that it, it, and, and it just flattens this experience. If the goal here is to say something about the immigrant experience circa 1885, there is nothing said there except the the thinnest gloss of what that story is. It's just like all these Europeans arrived from an entire continent, show up, and they're all just Americans. You know what that makes me think of? That's the story that the parents told, probably. Well, yeah, the, I think the, that the, is the, the parents tell a cleaned down version of the story, and the kids make it a movie and think it's the real yeah. story. That is the myth that the Irish That's and right. the Italians and the Jews and the Germans, they just all live together and get along because they're now all Americans and this is a melting pot. And that's clearly bullshit. Like, that's just, if you think about it for more than two seconds, of course that's not what happened. The Jews arrived and they lived in Jewish communities in Manhattan and in Brooklyn. I mean, I just think of, you know, uh, I, when I saw an interview. Well, it was so easy to get a job if you didn't yeah, speak the language. Well, there. When I saw an interview with Mel Brooks and he said, you know, uh, I lived in Brooklyn my whole childhood. And it wasn't until right. I was like a teenager or whatever. It wasn't until I crossed the Brooklyn Bridge that I, I saw Even that there was Manhattan anybody was who there, wasn't Jewish. Right. right? And I think the same is probably true if you were Jew or close to if you were Jew living on Hester Street speaking Yiddish, right, and and living in that community, these these uh, communities, of course, it took a while. You know, you show up to school, you don't speak perfect English. English. Right? Oh, you can't easily get along with Tony, uh, Tony, uh, whatever his name is, right. right? And of course, also, well, all these people lived all in the same place. They all lived in Lower Manhattan together. That was the immigrant experience, right? Nobody lived anywhere else nobody had I, it just okay it so me. i have questions how did this movie make money uh, how did it make money because it was this time of year it was the holiday season you want to take and your stupid dads ones. like me you'd be like oh good story yeah, you, you want to go story. take your little ones to go see a movie what else are you gonna go see this was it this was this was kind of it. This was the cartoon playing at the this multiplex. This was the family movie playing during the holidays at your multiplex. At the Comac multiplex. That's right. That's I think how this 
made money. And this movie has fans. Does it? Yeah. I'd like to speak to one of them. Yeah. I'd like to know what they see in this movie. I I just, I, I, I don't even know what's heroic about Fievel. Is there a hero story here anywhere? No. No, not really. He doesn't do... No, he doesn't. And he comes up with the idea for defeating the cats. I guess that's something. Maybe he doesn't do This was confusing much. to the seven-year-old. The no cats in America, but then getting rid of the half dozen cats. This actually was confusing to a seven-year-old. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But five, I mean, he's cute. He's cute to look at. <laughs> Right? They made like two, three more movies with him. Well, I, so I, are those better? No, I think they're worse. Oh I haven't seen them. Well, the survival goes west. I think they're worse. Which is the one I'm tempted. And then there were another two that were straight to video. Um, oh, well, I also did, um, Fievel also uh, uh, did become the um, uh, mascot of uh, UNICEF at some point. So I have that in my in my notes here, because of, and this is in quotes, his immigration experience reflects the adventures and triumphs of all cultures and their children. So uh, that's what UNICEF had to say, and he was made UNICEF's spokesmouse in the year 2000. Interesting left. This grossed $47 million. Off of nine. On a $9 million budget. That's amazing. That is pretty good. That's pretty good. Can you tell me how high the Linda Ronstadt song went on the Billboard chart? Number two. Number two? That's insane. Yeah, it got to number two. That's insane. That's that's with Michael Jackson. Like, up there with Michael Jackson, basically. And Madonna. Yeah, I mean, Michael Jackson and Madonna had number ones. Right. I mean, this might have been number two for like... Number two, right. This might have been number two for a week. Right, behind Like a Virgin is uh, somewhere out there. Um... Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's... Now, that's odd. I guess Linda Ross has a big star. Linda Ross has a big star at the time. So that's the only reason, right? Uh, Linda Ronstadt was a big star. I think it was the kind of thing you wanted a ballad sort of... I don't. I don't. Like I said, I tried. I couldn't listen to I the mean, whole thing. I mean, to figure out it. what these baby boomers were thinking in the 80s is just so interesting to me. I don't know. So tell me, tell me the immigrant story. Well, here, so this is from my grandmother. Real immigrant this story. is it's a real, here we go, real immigrant story. It was 1879. This is my grandmother speaking. And my maternal grandmother, Necha Epstein. So this would be my great, great grandmother. Necha had been working in Cousin Molly's bakery in the city for three months when she received a desperate letter from her parents. You must come home, they wrote. The people of the village are saying you are pregnant and we have sent you away to hide it from them. This is my maternal grandmother. My maternal great-great-grandmother. Because it hadn't been easy for the 19-year-old Necha to maneuver this change of venue from the village of Velapola in Galicia to the city, she was determined to ignore the letter, but she couldn't because additional letters... Each were more emotional than the one before, and pointing out that she, ruining them, kept arriving. Okay. Necha didn't want to return to her tiny village on the border of Austrian Hun. This is my 19-year-old great-great. She remembered how difficult it had been to obtain her parents' permission to leave. 
her mother had insisted that finding a husband had to be a top priority and that she would soon be past marriageable age. Necha pleaded and begged, promising that she was allowed to spend time in the city. She would be content to settle down and marry. All right, so this goes on for a little bit, having a hard time with her. And she's now working in a bakery. Necha had a strong feeling that it would be a mistake to move home. But when Cousin Molly interceded, she couldn't say no. And Cousin Molly explained that with her mother and father hysterical, it was definitely her duty to do as they asked. Okay, so well, ne- I'm sorry, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm lost a little bit. So Necha, there are stories being told about her that she's pregnant? Yes. People are saying okay. that they've sent... Necha is a, an apparently a very outgoing uh-huh. person who doesn't, who wa- doesn't want to be in a small city, uh, doesn't want to go back home. But her parents lure her. All right, hold on a second. Uh, blah, blah, blah. She ends up going back to live with her, and they set her up with this fellow who is a 20-year-old man by the name of David Hitner, and they arrange a marriage. Necha considered rebelling, but David was good-looking. So she didn't. She knew that sooner or later her husband would be thrust upon her, the next time might not be as attractive. So Necha married David and immediately became pregnant. Now, what happened next was when she first proposed the idea to David of emigrating, he was full of doubt. So they argued that although he knew he could earn a living anywhere, it would be expensive. They had no money for a trip and no place to stay when they arrived. None of the stuff that, of course, are in the movie. No money, no trip, no place to stay. Besides, she was pregnant. Um, Necha excitedly told David about her next idea. One of the villagers had won. This is how people actually came to America, okay? One of the villagers had won two tickets to America in a lottery that had been held a few weeks prior and she learned that because he was unwilling to leave Velapola, he would sell them for very little. Necha was persuasive. Even though that she knew she wouldn't see her parents again, she wanted to leave. This is written by my grandmother. Um, 30 days after her baby Abraham was born, David and Necha began their journey. In cramped steerage quarters with little food, the young couple talked incessantly about the golden Medina, the land of milk and hungry. Honey, the paradise that awaited. This is what I want to share. The only outstanding occurrence during their five-week journey was the morning a first-class passenger invited Necha and baby Abi to come to the upper deck to meet some of her friends. They took up a collection, Necha later related to David. They told me it was to take care of my baby. Gloom was everywhere. And they're coming from, from where? Felipol, Galicia. Oh, in Galicia, okay. I'll find. Mm. Now there's a story to tell. Hold on, give me a second. I'll pull it up. Shocks. You can get this out. This is...
Okay, here. So that was my maternal grandparents. Then my grandmother goes on to the paternal grandparents. In 1892, they left Kiev, Russia, Abraham and Minnie Trachtenberg. At the time, two types of pogroms were prevalent, the ones in which Jews were attacked, robbed, and sometimes murders, and those consisting of constant discrimination, persecution, and hounding. Abraham and Minnie had experienced both. They knew that the Tsar and his army grabbed Jewish boys for incredible lengths of service. Though their four sons were still children, 1891 had been an unhappy year. 1892 hadn't started out any better. Besides, many of the Jews in Kiev were emigrating to America. So listen to this. This is where I wanted to get to. One night, sorry, on the night they were to leave. It was nighttime because they were sneaking out of the city. The snow, which had been falling all day, was deep. Minnie bundled her six children, Morris, Jacob, Dora, Harris, Harris, whom I was named for, that is my great-grandfather, Ethel and Louis. Because she was worried about baby Louis being exposed to the bitter cold, she rolled him up in several blankets. This is my great-great-grandmother. The Trachtenbirds were the last to board the large horse-drawn wagon. All were instructed to be very quiet. Sleep if you can, they were told. It's going to be a long trip. The children were asleep almost immediately. Before long, despite the rough road and little and the many bumps, most of the passengers dozed off. Suddenly, there was a piercing scream. It was Minnie, screaming hysterical. Little Louie was not. Quickly, the conclusion was reached that little Louie must have toppled out when the wagon hit a bump. And just as quickly, the decision was made to go back, look for him. You've got to hand it to them, uh, my great-grandmother said when my family first told the story. All of those people running for their lives, agreeing to retrace the route. The wagon turned around, and two miles back, they found little Louie rolled up in his blankets, fast asleep on the side of the road in a mound of snow. My grandmother said, I like to think about the little Louie story, for if those people who were literally fleeing tyranny hadn't agreed to the search, Louie would not have reached manhood in America. Fanny and wouldn't have had all of their children. So that's sort of, the first story was one side of my family, but the story that I wanted to get to was the Trachtenberg family, where they're leaving and the baby falls out into the snow two but miles down. Do you know down. what happened to them when they got to the States? Oh, yeah. Oh, this, this book goes on plenty. Where did they go? They went to New York. Yeah? Yeah. I'm happy to share. It, in the summer of 1901, 400 people died. during. You want to hear my grandmother's? During the New York heat wave, two months later, President William McKinley was assassinated. It happened. <laughs> okay, I don't need, I don't need the, the American history lesson. My mother remembered both. Was this a- my mother remembered both the heat wave and the assassination. Of course, there was no such thing as air conditioning, my great-grandmother said. And since we didn't have electricity, we didn't have fans. Yeah, they make it to America. And they go on. In 1905, Henry Hitner left home for San Francisco. I had no idea. Look at that. And immediately, Mary had a compelling desire to join. I had no idea. Look at this. I didn't get this far. Though Mary loved her mother and felt a wonderful closeness to her family, she wanted to get away. As soon as Harry settled on the West Coast, Mary wrote announcing she would be arriving in San Francisco within the month. And to please find her a place to live. This is what, like a great uncle or something? Yeah. Harry's response was immediate and forceful. Don't come. This is a wild place with loose men, loose women, drunken bums. 
It's not a place for a nice girl. Mary was insistent, but Harry was emphatic. California was no place for a decent person. He was not going to stay. He would be returning home soon. And the earthquake happened. So oh, and that was my the family that, never moved out here. That's right. Okay. Wow. Yeah, and that's interesting. That so bad. That was the only hook I had into this story. It's like you know them getting on the boat. My great great uncle wrapped in a bundle off the side of the road in snow. Them having to double back and pick him up, which is hard to believe. It really is a little hard to believe as you're fleeing tyranny to go back and pick up a little bit. But these are all stories about what happened in the old country. These are not stories about what happened. Well, I mean, this is this is the this is the start of her memoir. Well, yeah, but okay. My theory, yes, on this is that Jews don't like to talk about and don't. love to talk about persecution. We both tell every story about our historical persecution, but when it comes to ways that we are persecuted or those who close to us are persecuted we allied those stories we 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 skip over them or we paper over them i mean we definitely saw this happen after the holocaust right and this uh, silly movie is another sort of example of this that I'm sure people who arrived, Jews especially, and other people who arrived in this country in 1885 had really hard experiences. Which is why they wanted to keep their Jewish secret, because it would make their experiences less hard, which is why they changed their names, which is why they wanted to assimilate which is why they got nervous. So my right. grandmother, who wrote this, but the story... never spoke Yiddish uh-huh. on purpose uh-huh. and used to bring over apple pies on the 4th of July. Yeah. Okay, so this this idea of being American, uh-huh. she was in the Women's Auxiliary Army, Army Corps. There's a picture of her in her uniform. Right. American. That was the thing. Right. And the more you focus in on your persecution, the more you're going to focus in on your outsider status. And that? Right. And that is not the story that Steven Spielberg wants to tell. He doesn't, I mean, it's certainly not for children, which I can understand, but he doesn't tell this for anybody else any other time. The story that when he has a story to tell about the Jewish immigrant experience, the story that he tells is, we arrived assimilated, right? I mean, this is sort of a term of art in immigration history is white on arrival. So we showed up and... The Yidden were not white on arrival. Well, none of these people were, right. really. It was a process. And for some, it took... I mean, also, these different people showed up It was easier times. for the Jews because they could change their name from Greenberg to Green, and they looked white. Sure. So it was easier. But when you show up not speaking the language, not knowing anybody, sometimes maybe unable to ply your trade, uh, it's, I imagine, it is hard, and it is a process to become American. That's the thing, right? It is a process to become American. 
especially when you are arriving in a cohort of people who are not welcomed immediately in this country. But in this movie, Fievel steps foot in America and he is immediately embraced. And and the the journey takes about I don't know like three days. I mean this movie is what like three days doesn't it doesn't take a large span of of time. And he arrives at the Liberty Island and is greeted by Henri the pigeon as my little immigrant. And the end of the movie, the pigeons are flying the uh, uh, tiger and the birds back to the Statue of Liberty, which now in the past three days has been has finished. been built. Right, amazingly, in whatever the span of time is. Oh, it's that's right. Henri is the dude who's building the Statue he's of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty the pigeon, he oh, says he's building the statue. Gosh, and yes. the, the last one of the last lines in the movie is he now calls him my little American. In the span of this film. Well, that was the goal. That's the achievement. Bible goes from becoming an immigrant. That's the achievement. To being an American. That's right. And that is the story. That is the journey. You said, well, what's the hero's journey here? It's not a hero's journey. become American. But it's the American journey. The American journey is arriving an immigrant and becoming an American. And in this story, that requires no sacrifice, um, not very much hardship, no... uh, you know, sloughing off of any kind of uh, identity you may have arrived with. You know, no real conflict. And it takes like three to five days. So this is what our rabbi of uh, blessed memory, Rabbi Saul White, who who we're talking about 100 years ago, he was the rabbi here for 48 years from uh, 34 until the early 80s. Uh, And he called this behavior out rather vociferously. Um, and he would castigate the Jewish city fathers here. But as a group, he castigated the Jewish city fathers, the well-born aristocrats whose innermost wish is to assimilate, to disappear as Jews. This is from Fred Rosenbaum's book. White bewailed the overall weakness of the Yiddish kite in San Francisco, especially in comparison with L.A., where Jewish life refuses to be chloroformed. He took the local JCC to task for its classes in opera, flower arranging, and film history when millions of Jews were being decimated on the European front. He railed at the starry state of Jewish education. Um, And in one column in mid-1942, entitled The Woes of My People, he lamented, we have been infected with the disease of self-hatred. And its active virus is felling countless victims. And he had, we'll talk about this during our centennial, but he had this huge pushback against the Jewish, often the German Jewish aristocracy here, which he could not get them to come out against the Nazis. San Francisco was the last city to have a mass rally against Nazism. And this is what Rabbi White said. He said, How unnatural a people we have become that to express our sympathy with the tortured Jewish communities of Europe, our leaders urge that we must do so only if we enlist non-Jewish organizations in the planning, that we dare not express our sorrow for the Jewish victims without doing so for others, 
that it would be best if non-Jews would eulogize our slain brothers and sisters? Such counsel you give us. Only against us has the enemy declared a policy of extermination and is now well on his way to realize how lowly we have fallen, how poor in spirit we have become. So uh, he was attacking sort of this desire to assimilate, to not identify as Jewish, to not speak out for other Jews on the other side of the world, for the fear that to do so would highlight us or would, would change whatever status we had accrued, right? If the whole point of the American tale is, oh, look at this, 90 minutes, three days, you're now an American. Why would I want to go backwards from that? Well, that's, yeah, that's the story, except that you don't, it doesn't even feel like or look like assimilation because like I said, there's nothing to assimilate from. I mean, any feeling that there is difference is, is just completely that's erased right. that's from right. the record. Right? That's right. And okay, I, it's they, unclear what's different about Fievel Mouskowitz well, than the other mouses. They light Mice. candles at a Hanukkah. I, I mean, that's it. That's a, basically it. They don't do it. And he, he doesn't lament any loss of... He has, a, he has a funny blue hat instead of a whole lot of black hair or a whole lot of red hair, which is what the Irish mice have. What was the funny... That's what is the it. funny blue hat? What is that? That's like the least Jewish... Symbol I've ever seen. There's nothing Jewish about a blue, looks like a train conductor's hat. Yeah, I don't know what. It's sort of Russian-ish. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I guess. guess. But yeah, there's no distinctness. If he had a really. Magain David necklace, it would have been much, you know, that would have been something. Yeah, but the Jewishness is just, it, it's not important. Not even not important. It's l- dealt with. Literally in the first 10 seconds of Ever the movie. Again. And then. So, on a scale of one to, to 10, again. how Jewish is this no, movie? This movie is, I think, not very Jewish at all. Right. It really does. You start, you start at like a nine and a half, and then you make your way into the fours and threes. No, this, this movie is, I think, maybe a two and a half. Can we not put this in the canon? At best. No. I will look. We, we talked about, you want to we put talked this about in putting canon. movies in the canon. God, and no, I, I do not want to put this okay, in the canon. Okay, good. But I, maybe we should clarify our terms. Yes. To me, the canon is the same thing as the biblical canon. These are the texts that you can't leave a out. Jew should be familiar with. That's right. In order to understand their tradition. I mean, that's what the canon is But for. you put Homicide by Mamet right? in there. You've, Mamet and Homicide is the only canon movie you've elected yet. So far? Yes. No, I think when we did... You didn't, did uh, we, we didn't put Keeping the Faith in there. We put Little Murders in. Did we? I voted for it. I think you voted against it. <laughs> I, no, I would, I would sooner put Homicide in Little Murders. Um, but this movie, no. There is nothing here for a Jewish audience that has anything to say about Jewishness. And I think that's why I felt so unsatisfied after sitting through this movie with my two children and having them learn nothing by the end of this movie. Nothing. Maybe worse than nothing. Right. Right. I mean, because <laughs> you're learning falsehoods. 
right? But it's not even like it, 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 it's not even that clear. It's not even that clear to give them the idea. Like unless they're no, paying attention in the first ten minutes, it doesn't even matter. But after that point, no. And the the film, as we've said, the the story, what happens, it's it's mostly incoherent. I will say the animation is not bad. There are parts of this movie that at least look pretty good. I think the storm in on the sh- in the ship is kind of nice. Did you understand sort of what the herring were up the stage? I, I, there were fish I didn't just understand that. I didn't. Because... He has to go up, and someone tricks him to go up. I, I didn't. Yeah, it was hard to follow some of this. Yeah, no, no, that doesn't. Nothing made any sense. But I think <laughs> a, a, some of it at least looks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think Dom and Fivel is, is doing cute. Decent animation work. Fivel looks cute, but I don't understand why this movie has kind of any reputation at all. Really, I mean, I don't know why it's considered. I I think just because if you want a movie for kids with a Jewish character. What else is there? I can't think. Certainly there's no animated film that you can think of with a major Jewish character of any kind. And that's the only reason I thought of this. I'd never seen this movie before. Before this week, I'd, I'd never seen this movie. All I knew I'm was... I'm sorry. It's an it's a, it's a animated kids film, and the hero is Fievel. And he's Jewish. That's all I... And he's a Jewish immigrant. That's all I knew about this movie. Is there really no other movie for kids? I cannot think of another movie um, for kids, an animated movie, that has a Jewish character. There's no, no Jewish Disney princess? There is no... Well, no, that's, that's an omission. No, we've got... Now, you know, a Chinese princess and, you know, we got all Disney. Why not make a Queen Esther movie? I don't understand. Queen Esther seems like a good, what's wrong with Queen Esther as a character? Uh, The Queen Esther Disney movie? Yes. I said, whoa, it's it's any less racy than Cinderella? They've done done, uh, Prince of Egypt. Oh, okay. Okay. So there are biblical stories, right? That, that has happened. That's the only thing I can think of as... I, it's sort of disappointing that Moses is our only Disney character. <laughs> it's not even Disney, it's well, DreamWorks. Well, if you had to pick a Jewish hero, I mean, he's up there. I guess. Right? I guess. I just, I, Queen Esther seems like an obvious one. Um, that is a good story. It gets a little... A little too grim. murderous. A little too murderous. Yeah, but all those stories are murderous anyway. I mean... All those like fairy tales are yeah. Often you can, dark. You can take Haman's. You can take Haman's head off. That's fine. No, no, no. But Disney would just it would just take that stuff out. Disney would just take that stuff out. The way they do with all those uh, like fairy tales and stuff, they take all the gory stuff out. So that's the great. So you've you pointed out the great irony of this movie. It's like it's so thick, and you've really articulated it. Which is Steven Spielberg and a bunch of other baby boomer Jews got together to make an immigrant story of the Jewish experience. And the end result of that experience is they become American. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the dream. That's the story. So then why tell the story? What do you mean? But just, you just, why would you 
point out the story? Why would you make light of the fact that you're, I guess it's a Horatio Alger. Look where we come from. We come with poor little, poor little nothing Jews, little mice, and we've become Americans now. Boy, that is so sad. Yeah, I mean, and I wish quintessentially, I wish Spielberg would have explored this stuff a little deeper. But um, at the time, I think depth was not really maybe his strong suit. Ever. Well, he's made some. I mean, I was thinking. I mean, you want you talked about doing well. Schindler's List is the savior of oh, a non a non yeah, a non Jew who comes in and yeah. saves Jews. I told you what Kubrick said about that movie, right? What did Kubrick say? So Kubrick was gonna he was gonna make a Holocaust. Movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was gonna make a Holocaust yeah. movie, and he'd been working on. You know, he worked on his movies for thirty years before they got made. Right? That's how he went. And he was working on a Holocaust movie. He couldn't figure out how to make it. It's a story. And then Schindler's List came out, and he said, "Oh." That he decided to do Eyes Wide Shut after Schindler's List came out, so he pivoted. And he said, oh, Spielberg, the Holocaust is about failure. And Spielberg picked the only story of success to tell well, to tell a lesson, okay. which is only about failure. You've talked about wanting to talk about Kubrick. You want to do that next? Well, you could get a Kubrick and Spielberg in one fell swoop. Oh, AI is terrible. Are you kidding me? Oh, I hate it. Are you kidding you me? You like AI? Yeah, it's really good. And it's... Oh, it's awful. It's not about triumph. It's deeply disturbing. Okay, let's watch AI next. Fine. And and theological. Oh, heavy duty For theological. Sure. Well, yes, absolutely. Especially at the end when all the aliens come in. Well, the aliens? Or, or higher evolved technological creatures. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're robots. All right, you want to watch AI next? If that's what we're going to go, it's very theological. It has yes. To, yes. No, it's about what's a soul. Does it yes. have a soul? That's yes. right. I think you could sink your teeth into that one. Absolutely, I could. But I was always upset Kubrick didn't make it. Because yeah. that always sort of bothered me. You liked AI. I haven't seen it in a long time. And I remember, I remember being so disappointed by it. It was, I think I need to see it again. I think it's I think it might be a movie that's tough to really get the first certainly the first time around because it is weird. Oh, it's very weird. And and grim in so many ways. And I think I I, I might I don't know if I've No, seen that's it a good twenty first century. That's a good that's a, as we move into uh, the twenties, that's a good movie for us to do look some at. Some kind of spiel. I mean Spielberg is Maybe the you know among the handful of I don't want to greatest do Jewish I don't want to do Schindler. popular artists. Yeah, but which, ever. what's his most Jewish movie other than Schindler? I, Munich, maybe. I haven't seen. I only saw. I haven't. I I did see that, but I haven't rewatched it. My, see, my favorite part of Munich is just all the spy stuff. But it's all about a bunch of Israelis. Yeah, but it, it's re, it's a good spy movie. It's like it, yeah. it's got some good spy stuff in it. Some of the other stuff in them that movie goes awry a little yeah. bit towards the end. All right. We don't have any Jewish geography for this film. I did. Well, you I did your you. Jewish geography. I gave well, you. It's yeah, my sort of. story of my family. That is the story that's of your family. That's the damn story of my family yeah, is this. I don't this. have any. I'll no, but you, that's you, the story of my family. It's, 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 that's that, it. That's it. That's I've it. I've shown my kids it. Terrible. That's your that's your five story. It's awful.
Yeah. That, I think that's why I found it most disappointing. I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Do it. Uh, so first, I want to thank Jonathan Bayer for our it's little theme, theme jingle. Um, so uh, he, he's just going to record another version for us. Okay. So maybe if I nudge him, uh, he will. But he, he wrote and uh, played our little uh, theme jingle. So thank you, Jonathan. And uh, I also wanted to mention a little bit of feedback that we've got. Yes. Um, from one of our listeners who happens to be my brother, <laughs> uh, Daniel. Uh, in our first episode, when we brought up the idea of the canon, I asked, well, you know, what do you call something that's not in the canon? You said apocrypha, <laughs> right? I said, I thought that was like a Christian thing. So uh, Daniel wrote to me and said, there is a Jewish term. Oh, what is it? For the apocrypha. Um, Safarim... Chitzonim. Chitzonim, okay. Meaning literally the external books. So there you go. And he says there yeah. was a debate and the Sanhedrin made a decision what was out and what was in and then forbade even reading the external books. But your point is valid, which is why are some of those books in the canon? Like there's no good reason for the book of Job to be in the canon when the book of Job literally disagrees with every other book that go that comes before it. So it goes back to your point, which is just like, you just had to put Job in there because that's just part of the human experience. And we don't care if it well, contradicts sometimes everything. so good. Well, that's right. Something, some, sometimes something doesn't is matter. so good that's doesn't right. matter. An American tale is not that. No. <laughs> it, it certainly doesn't. Um, my I love that your brother's that, listening. That's that great. He says his favorites are uh, Susanna. There's a book of Susanna, as in Daniel and Susanna, and uh, also an additional book of Daniel, which focuses on Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, real? Oh, nice. And there's also the book of Jubilees, which I guess is Yes, more well Jubilees, known, Maccabees, Maccabees and... Hebrews, all of those. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't know that not only did stuff just not get, not only did it mean you didn't have to read this stuff, but that basically if it wasn't in the Bible, it's excluded. That's you right. You don't read it. To That's read right. It at all. So maybe we should think about our canon. Also, good. Can I ban an American Tale? Like, can American well, Tale be in the? Let's burn the frames. Um, I'm kidding. Yeah, you can edit something that. Part anybody out. needs really to watch. I wish there were a good, but we keep choosing that we would put in the canon. That's a good question. What's the best Jewish kids book? Prince of Egypt. I've never seen it. Have you seen it? Of course. Yeah, I've never seen it. You've never seen Prince of Egypt? No. It's based on real Midrash. It's but based on the Midrash. That's like early 2000s, right? Yes. Val Kilmer plays Moses. So too late for me to be a kid and too early for my kids. Well, I'm a rabbi, so I've seen it plenty. So you've seen it. And my, one of the professors, Professor Vazatsky, was an advisor on the film. And it's based off a real Midrash. It's a great Midrash. The Midrash is, right, so Pharaoh and Moses raised in the same home, weren't they? Yeah. So, oh, that's the story. So, what happens if Pharaoh is Moses' brother? Moses is his estranged brother. He has to come back with his estranged brother. It's so, it's not just a, a straight biblical story. No, it's, it's that whole, whole midrash thing. that really plays off of Pharaoh and Moses having grown up together and have a brotherly relationship and a sibling rivalry between the two of them. Oh, speaking of which, is there any movie midrush for this film? 
I mean, there's no movie movie. There's no movie. <laughs> there's no movie shot. I think that's probably. I wish if there were anything I wish that were in there, it would be something that fills me in a little bit about warranty rat. <laughs> Why does he decide to dress up like a rat when he's a cat? If there's one thing that I'm like. I kind of wish there was like another three minutes in this film, which I don't because it's, it's mercifully short. Um, that would be mercifully, only, that would be the only thing that I would maybe want to put in because every time I think about it, my head hurts. That's right. No, that's right. In fact, I couldn't understand it at first. I, and I was like trying to explain to my kid. No, he's not. My kid's can, he's a rat. Is he a cat? It's unclear. Yeah. And, and on the flip side of, if there were part of this movie that I'd want to take out, it would be that whole subplot. It'd be Warranty Rat. I would erase that character completely. He has no... I, yes. set up good, as a I villain. like it. We can edit these movies. Okay, good. Can I, if I, he does if, nothing. If I'm going to edit this movie, you know what I'm going to put in? Here's This is not that hard. Not that hard. Uh-huh. I'm going to put in, at the first five minutes, something he loves in his home country. Fievel? Some heart connection to the old country, to what they had previously, so that the departure to become an American is filled with some lament and conflict. Well, he should have to sacrifice something. That's what I'm saying. Right? As a hero, he has he should to have to sacrifice there something. There should be some affiliation, connection, warmth, memory, object, something that connects him back to who he was in the old country that he has to give up. Yeah, that doesn't happen. At all! Not at all! None of these characters have to give up anything in order to achieve their dreams. This is the American ideal. The, emo- right. the, 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 you should be able to achieve your dreams without giving up or sacrificing anything. There's only one emotional it's your right valence as an here. American to achieve your dreams. This is your right to be, to be, be American and to, to achieve the American dream. Yeah, but you got to give something up. Well, of, of, of course, but not in these kinds of stories. Not in this story. The only sure. what I was going to say was the only emotional valence here. The only depth yeah. given to any character in this movie, yeah, is the fact that the father will not talk about Fivel. He will yeah. not. I like talk that about Fivel with anybody because he won't acknowledge yeah. the fact. Okay, that, okay, that was about. That was the no, only was depth nice. of anybody here that in the whole actually, movie. That was actually kind of nice. That the, was it. Papa Mouskowitz is actually pretty good, and I think that actor's actually does something with that role. And and you're right; that's the one surprising thing. That's the only thing really that happens that it has like, any depth to it. Just any that you wouldn't just yeah. That's that's not just lazy. Is yeah when he when he loses him and he shows up at at the the point of embarkation and they say how many and he says five. And then he says, oh, four. And, but then and... Tilly wants to look. If, I don't even know if that's her name. Tilly yeah, wants, she wants to look for him. And the father's and he's like, no, he's that's gone. That's right. He's that's, gone. So that, that was, that's a he's little dead. feeling. That was the only feeling in the movie, I felt. Um, 
Yes, because that, what does that say? It's kind of real. That's like the only like, yes, you probably would lose a child if you're making this journey. Like that's, that felt like, oh, genuine emotion, genuine tragedy, genuine trauma, and he doesn't want to deal with it. That sounds very Jewish to me. Well, very American. Right. Very American. We don't talk about trauma. We don't talk about uh, uh, the ugly parts of our history. We don't talk about the things we've lost. We just move on. Right? That's that's how that's how Papa Mauskowitz becomes an American. He he just he just wants to he just wants to move on. And they do. And what do they achieve at the end of that movie? I mean, I guess the the victory is just they're all together and they're now Americans. Right? But that's about that's I mean, I guess that's enough. I don't know. They could have played with the biblical references there because there's plenty of like the story of Jacob. I don't have to go to this week's Torah portion. But the story of Jacob losing his son, his favorite son, and then him getting an inkling that his son might still be alive. I mean, there's 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 biblical references that went totally underutilized here. Well, he does uh, he does have there was a one moment where Fievel is like on the street. And you just see these rows of like homeless mice. Again, not really explored, not really delved into. Well, mice for the most part are homeless, correct? That's true. But they're not just homeless. They're whole, they're, they don't even have mouse holes. They have nothing. You just see them sleeping on the street, sort of down and out. And as mice do. As mice do. And there is this mo, and he falls in with these tufts. Again, for like a minute. He, he did these tufts, and they're like, hey, look, you don't look, need your family. They're not even looking for you. Better that it went on for a minute than longer Yeah, than they're that. not even looking for you. What do you care? And Five was like, yeah, I don't care about my family. They never looked for me. I don't need them. I don't need anybody. And then he falls asleep, and he wakes up, and it's like, that never happened. I mean, it's just, it's like that kind of, that could have been like, a whole act. What did David Bluth do after this? Don Bluth. What did he do after this? Uh, he did The Land Before Time, which I think was a modest hit about dinosaurs. He did Dragon's Lair. Do you remember Dragon's Lair? It was a video game. The video game? You do remember it. How could you forget it? Yeah. Dragon's Lair yeah. was the coolest video game ever. It was really interesting. Because it was a cartoon video game when everything else was Pong. Yes. He took like high... Oh my God! Res. They animation. had it at Kutcher's, so I used to go up. I didn't understand dad. it because I mean, oh I, no, 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 but you just you just looked at it. There yeah, was, I mean, I no, no. I think the gameplay it just seemed like there was nothing. No, but it just looked, it looked like a beautiful. cartoon. Oh my God! It, it looked, looked like nothing else for twenty years. It looked yeah, that yeah. Good. It looked gorgeous, and and you kind of controlled it barely, barely. But it's yeah. I mean, that was. I, I didn't realize time. they made a movie, Dragon's Lair. No, no, no. It was the video game. Wait, he. D- yeah, he created the video game. That was Don Bluth. That was his animation. That was his... <laughs> wow. I mean, in partnership with, I guess, you know, whoever the video sure. game company. But no, that was like a Don Bluth production. That's so That funny. video game. Um, which was, I mean, ahead of its time, right? In terms of trying to Everything. get any kind of high-resolution image as part of a They had it in video pictures, game. and the kids would be crowded around it yeah. like nobody's business. Yeah. So that was Dumbluth. It's like early 80s. Um, and then oh, he did um, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Oh, All Dogs Go to Heaven. I never saw that. That, was, I, that was a big movie. Um, Another, and, it's Dom oh, DeLuise in that movie. This is a note I had. Here's the interesting thing. 
that he, Michael Jackson, you mentioned Michael Jackson earlier, Michael Jackson approached Don Bluth to make... Captain EO. No, 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 no. Uh, something could have been good. To make a Fantasia-style movie with Beatles music called Strawberry Fields Forever. That's because Michael Jackson owned the catalog. Because Michael Jackson <laughs> exactly owned the rights to, like, I think most, if not all, of the yeah, Beatles catalog. Yeah, you know why he ended up up? Because Paul McCartney on the Say, Say, Say said, you should look into publishing. So he went and bought the Beatles catalog out from yeah, under Paul. Yeah. I don't, I don't think out from under. I'm no, sure it was I think a massive had... payday for, for the Beatles. And they're like, yes, we'll take the cash. Because I'm sure it was a lot. I'm sure it was, I mean, I'm sure Michael Jackson paid a, had a ridiculous sum of money and probably paid a ridiculous sum of money. So and, Fantasia with Beatles songs. Yeah, so Strawberry sort of a, Fields. Sort of a, yes, uh, and I guess anthology kind of uh, type movie, maybe without any real storyline, but all to the to Beatles music. Like Across the Universe. Did you ever see that movie? Uh, no, but I know what you're talking about. So, yes, and Don Bluth was on board. And um, the Beatles didn't approve it, so it didn't happen. I think we can say it was for the best. It was probably for the best. I don't know if this needs to be on air, but I did start watching the Peter Jackson. Um, I watched all of it. Get Back thing. I just started. All of it. I had to stop. I was having too many feelings. Oh, yes. I had to stop a number of times. It was too intense for me. I had to shut it off and go watch something else. Like, I can't handle this. It's too much. Yeah. I know. Yeah. What was that? It just got overwhelming. And just wait, did you get to episode two when they got no, the- No, no, I got like 15 minutes in and I was like, I don't, I don't know. I'm having too many feelings. Oh, I don't know if I can handle this oh, for much longer. No, you got to stay. Oh, oh yeah. I'll, I'll go back to it. But it was, I, I mean- Oh, it's intense. Wait till, wait till you get to the hidden camera. like, oh my wait, God. The hidden microphone is intense. I'm watching the Beatles create a song out of nothing in sort of real time. This is, this is just extraordinary. Did you see this? I'm gonna, you, can, you can shut this off. All now. right. Hold on. So, what, is there anything we got to do? I'm just trying to think if there's anything we got to do um, to wrap up. Okay. I'm going to do the closer. So this has been The Jewish Frame. Uh, we have been talking about an American tale. I think the consensus is you can probably find another movie to watch over the holidays if you want to go uh, uh, see a movie over the holidays. But a very happy Hanukkah from me, Ben Shin. Rabbi Dan Ain. Happy Hanukkah. Joyous New Year. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care.